Welcome, Alternative News listeners. This is 91.7 KOOP Community Radio. This is bringing light into darkness, news, and analysis. I'm your host, Pedro Gatos, and we are transmitting from Austin, Texas, for your listening edification. This show has been pre-recorded on Wednesday, March 31st, to be replayed on Monday, April 5th, 2000. 21 at 6 p.m. Central Standard Time. Live in Austin, Texas on KOOP 91.7 FM and streaming live at coop.org. You can listen live each Monday night from 6 to 7 p.m. Central Standard Time at koop.org. Many of the shows are archived at pedrogatos.org. All comments are welcomed and can be sent to Pedro at pgatos00 at gmail.com. That's pgatos00 at gmail.com. This is our 50th post-COVID show. A new world, but the same place. So stay tuned for a very informed and documented dialogue. Thank you for joining us, and we hope to have a recording of the show up on pedrogatos.org website for your closer scrutiny within the week. Again, thank you for joining us tonight, and thanks for inviting your friends to join us in future shows. So stay tuned. In the battle of ideas, let's get ready to go to war. Pedro Gatos and bringing light into darkness Monday news and analysis since we began broadcasting on Co-op Radio in 2002. Has been investigating and seeking to present genuine truth-seeking perspectives of how U.S. foreign policy impacts majority populations around the world. We also seek to identify other human-generated behaviors that either create or aggravate human misery outcomes in the world that by definition are preventable and therefore reversible. Over the past 18 years, our record speaks to the veracity of our reporting. The impact of U.S. foreign policy in the world, on the world, population, is unrivaled in reach and in impact. Our presumption is that the U.S. population is a compassionate and social justice-driven people, that if we know the truth of the matter, we support policies that promote the most fair and democratic outcomes. The problem is, too often, we are misinformed by our government and our mainstream media. Therefore, this show is dedicated to critically evaluating all information before accepting it as believable and as worthy for becoming the foundation for building our worldview understandings upon. Tonight, we turn our attention to Afghanistan. We have been in Afghanistan the last 20 years, and there is a May 1st deadline for the withdrawal of U.S. troops that we'll be speaking to with a special guest, Matthew Howe. There is an amazingly courageous backstory to Matthew Howe. However, this introduction to Matthew Howe is specific for the content of this show on Afghanistan. His personal biography is inspiring. Matthew had nearly 12 years experience with America's wars overseas with the United States Marine Corps, Department of Defense, and State Department. He has been a senior fellow with the Center for International Policy since 2010. In 2009, Matthew resigned in protest from his post in Afghanistan with the State Department over the American escalation of the war. Prior to his assignment in Afghanistan, Matthew took part in the American occupation of Iraq. First, in the 2004 to 2005 period in Zalah ad-Din province, with the State Department Reconstruction and Governance Team, and then in 2006 to 2007 in Anbar Province as Marine Corps Company Commander. When not deployed, 
Matthew worked on Afghanistan and Iraq war policy and operations issues at the Pentagon and State Department from 2002 to 2008. Matthew's writings have appeared in online and print periodicals such as the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, Defense News, The Guardian, The Huffington Post, USA Today, The Wall Street Journal, and The Washington Post. He has been a guest on hundreds of news programs on radio and television networks, including the BBC, CBS, CNN, C-SPAN, Fox, NBC, MSNBC, NPR, Pacifica, Co-op Radio, and RT. The Council on Foreign Relations has cited Matthew's resignation letter from his post in Afghanistan as an essential document. In 2010, Matthew was named the Ridnor Prize recipient for truth-telling, and in 2020, he was awarded as a Defender of Liberty by the Committee for the Republic. Matthew is a member of the Board of Directors for the Institute for Public Accuracy, an advisory board member for the Committee to Defend Julian Assange and Civil Liberties, Expose Facts, North Carolina Committee to Investigate Torture, the Resistance Center for Peace and Justice, Veterans for Peace, and World Beyond War, and he is an associate member of Veteran Intelligence Professionals for Sanity, VIPS. He is a 100% disabled veteran and has been certified by North Carolina as a peer support specialist for mental health and substance use disorder. It is a great honor to have Matthew return to bringing light into darkness. Enjoy. Okay, so welcome, Alternative News listeners. This is 91.7 Co-op Radio. You can find us on the web at koop.org. This is bringing light into darkness, and this is your host, Pedro Gatos, and we are super blessed to be having with us today a returning guest. That would be Matt Howell. And Matt, thank you so much for making time to visit with us today. Oh, my pleasure. Thanks for having me back, Pedro. Well, listen, just a short introduction. Matt has extensive experience in the Afghan theater. He's had almost 12 years of experience with America's wars overseas in the Marine Corps, also with the Department of Defense and the State Department. He's been a senior fellow at the Center for International Policy since 2010. In the, I presume it was the State Department, in 2009, Matt resigned in protest from his post in Afghanistan with the State Department over the American escalation of the war. So I guess it's kind of hard for you to believe it. That's 12 years ago, and we're still there. But Matt, with that short introduction, I just again want to thank you so much for making yourself available. You know, the news that is breaking and maybe you can fill in the history here for us a little bit. But the Trump administration, they signed a draw deadline agreement with the Taliban by May the 1st for U.S. forces to get out of Afghanistan. And in Afghanistan, there is the Tolo News that's reporting that the Biden administration is asking the Taliban to agree to continue that presence in Afghanistan for another three to six months past the May 1st deadline. That that's already been been submitted, and it appears that that is getting rejected due to the strong military position, I presume, that the, the Taliban has. But anyhow, can you start off with that agreement, understanding, and then also where you think 
this process may end up with with the what appears to be again some diplomatic back and forth. Yeah, so this peace process, which is the first peace process Afghanistan has had in 30 years or so. The last time there was a peace process was after the Soviet Union left in 1989 and that peace process unfortunately failed. There is multiple reasons for that. One of the reasons was that and this kind of counters the a prevailing myth about Afghanistan that exists in the U.S., you know, no, no thanks to the film Charlie Wilson's War, but uh, the idea that the United States abandoned Afghanistan, the idea that the United States, once the Soviet Union leaves in 1989, the United States has nothing more to do with Afghanistan, and that's actually not true. What happens after 1989 is that the United States is adamant for victory they want to see the communist government in Kabul fall, and so they do two things. One, they continue to send weapons and money and, and assistance to the various Mujahideen or rebel groups. The other thing they do is they put up all kinds of roadblocks and obstacles and, and difficulties in that peace process. And that leads, again, of course, to the, the civil war in Afghanistan in the 1990s, which leads to the Taliban which, you know, indirectly leads to the 9-11 attacks. So what what you see here with this peace process is it begins, Donald Trump sends Zalmay Khalilzad, who was Trump's special representative for Afghanistan, uh, and Khalilzad actually is remaining as Biden's representative for Afghanistan. After years and years of the U.S. military, the U.S. State Department, uh, U.S. politicians saying the Taliban won't negotiate, this is why we have to beat them militarily, as soon as Khalilzad speaks with the Taliban, they're amenable, and a deal comes about fairly quickly, within a year, a, a, a peace deal. But it's a peace process. This is the first part of a peace deal, mm-hmm. uh, this agreement between the Taliban and, 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 and the United States. And this agreement is, is terribly flawed uh, in a lot of different ways, you know, but it is the first step of the peace process. The second step of that process then was for the Afghan government to begin negotiations with the Taliban. Um, and those negotiations have been, it's the best, faltering <laughs> it's yeah, a good yeah. way to describe that, right? Well, let me, um, let, me let me ask you to and, back up just a second because sure. this is a fascinating history that just is not known in in the United States. And you mentioned that in 1989 that there was the fall of this communist government, whatever you want to call that government. If I, you know, we we've been saying from a public relations thing forever how we're so interested in women's rights in in Afghanistan, but in reality. That government was the first substantial advancement for those types of interests. Can you just describe the before the 1989 toppling of that government, kind of what direction Kabul, and I realize, you know, most of Afghanistan is just, it's a very diverse geographical situation where you can have the capital be empowered by one interest and and so much of the country be empowered by another one. But can you take us back to the pre-Russia involvement period in Afghanistan and give us some more contextual history? So just a program note to our listeners, we dropped or lost about eight to 10 seconds of Matthew's narrative here. He's responding to the question of returning to and providing additional historical context of Afghanistan in the 70s, before the request for the Russian intervention and that component of history. 
to the outside world, basically. And that begins this uh, in the 1970s, then that causes quite a, a, a great deal of tension that is still playing out this day in Afghanistan. So what you have occurring is as the socialist government takes power from the king in 1973, uh, that, of course, frightens and threatens much of the conservative, rural, ultra-religious uh, elements within Afghanistan. And so you have this split in Afghanistan that is kind of, you know, urban versus rural, conservative versus modern, uh, secular versus religious. You know, you can, you know, divide it that way. And that, of course, plays into the hands of the Cold War. That, of course, plays into the hands of the Soviet Union and the United States. And so because that's a very easy thing for the two of them to back. And so what you see, particularly with the United States, is the United States because the government in Afghanistan in the 1970s is a socialist government, and then there's a revolution and, and it becomes a Marxist government. So the United States backs this ultra-religious rural revolution against this Marxist government. And, you know, I've met people who fought uh, at that point who were, were there in the 1970s, and, you know, a lot of what it was was for those people who were rebelling against the government was this encroachment they felt uh, on their traditional way of life, on their values. You know, mm-hmm. so you'll speak to people who you'll, you'll say, well, why did, why did you rebel against the government? And you'll get answers like, because the government came to our village and asked us what our wives' names are. You know, and that still continues to this day. You know, if, if you look at the war as it has been for the better part of the last three decades, where it has really been divided along ethnic lines between the Pashtuns of the East and the, you know, this is oversimplifying a bit, but really, you know, in broad strokes, it it falls into a a, a conflict between the Pashtun people of the East and and South of Afghanistan, the rural Pashtuns, uh, versus, you know, the the, the non-Pashtun people. The Pashtuns make up about 40% of, of Afghanistan. Um, and then, you know, and this, this fight between the Pashtuns and those who are not Pashtun, or, or those who are rural versus those who are urban, those who are secular versus those who are religious, mm-hmm. you know, that fault line, uh, it's not a perfect fault line, but that fault line still uh, is in play uh, today. And, and what, so, yeah. With, and so, with, yeah, but what, you, what you're talking about, Pedro, though, yeah. was absolutely true. What, what the communist government that the Soviet Union was backing was a government that was uh, trying to build a nationwide education system, trying to build a nationwide health care system, trying to build uh, a nationwide uh, infrastructure, was uh, secular, uh, was committed to women's rights, was committed to the rights of all minorities, was committed... It was a government that would have allowed for religious freedom, you know, while, you know, while being a, a communist government. And a lot of times people think that those two things are not, cannot coexist, uh, which is, is, is simply not true. Um, and so you dig, you had with the fall of the, the, the communist government lasts until uh, 1992. The Soviets leave in 1989. The communist government lasts until 1992. Um, and then the country plunges into this awful civil war. But, uh, yeah, the, the, the values that we claim here in the United States, and I use proverbial we, right? right, but the values that the United States supposedly we signal and we, we, we state and we, we claim that we represent, were represented by that government in Kabul in the 1980s. 
Um, in terms of education, healthcare, women's rights, mm-hmm. you know, opportunity, etc. And those that we were backing in the Mujahideen were the opposite of that. Right. And I guess one of the questions that comes to mind is, in the Charlie Wilson's movie was the oversimplification and actually the misrepresentation in so many ways of that yeah. history that you just presented. But there is the uh, geopolitical uh, interest that the United States felt it had, which was to bloody the nose of, of, of Russia and try to create that type of Vietnam type of loss of life for Russia in their intervention. And eventually they had to abandon their support, at least their military support for that reason, I believe. But I guess what I'm really trying to get at is just the fact that this government that came to power, they went to Russia to ask for help because of this Mujahideen uprising. And of course, it and by itself, without the U.S. help, probably would not have had the success that it did to overthrow that government. Is that is that a fair statement? Can you yeah, that, that's absolutely fair. You know that that's absolutely true. And you can look at the the uh, the actions of the of the, the Carter administration in 1979. Uh, Zygmunt Brzezinski, Jimmy Carter's national security advisor, you know, he bragged about this. The success of that operation. They were the United States was successful in you know, lighting this fire that caused the Soviets to enter into Afghanistan, you know, because they were, the Soviets were, there's a number of reasons, but they wanted to see the government in Kabul uh, be sustained. They were also afraid of, you know, you have to remember at that time, 1978, 1979, going into 1980, there have been a number of Islamic revolutions throughout the Middle East. And the idea uh, among the Americans was that, you're going to ignite these revolutions in the southern part of the Soviet Union, where a large percentage of their population was Muslim, mm-hmm. um, and that would cause unrest, and that would help bring about the end of the Soviet Union. So while that never happened, you can understand the Soviets, though, thinking that, look, we do have to enter in because we can't have this spread further. Mm-hmm. But so mm-hmm. it, it, in many ways, it was a successful operation by the Americans that got the Soviets to react the way that the Americans wanted to. But of course, right, whatever success that was, it is just completely dwarfed. Well, one, of course, by the obscenity of the the, the catastrophe that has befallen the Afghans, right? So you're basically going to use and sacrifice sacrifice a whole nation of people, destroy generations of lives, for your own geopolitical purposes, so how, how obscene and, and, and how obscene and criminal that is. But on the other side of that as well, Pedro, is that you had this tremendous blowback, right? One of the things that occurs with the, the funding, uh, with the support of the Americans for the Mujahideen in Afghanistan is, of course, the creation of al-Qaeda. You know, bin Laden was on the American payroll. <laughs> he goes to Pakistan to help support the Afghans, he, along with one or two other uh, individuals, helps, well, they form al-Qaeda, you know, and of course everyone is familiar with that story. The what, blowback from this was yeah. just incredibly massive, and whatever success you what, know, the Americans can try and claim is just completely been dwarfed by the blowback from it. Absolutely, and I think it's important that what people are not clear on, most people understand that now, but what they're not clear on is to the extent <laughs> that the opposition 
fighting Assad on behalf of U.S. or at least in congruence with U.S. foreign policy interests are these same al-Qaeda-type monsters. And the same can be said in Libya. The LIFG, the Libyan Islamic Fighting Group, were huge in that whole uprising in the northeast Libya area. Everywhere you turn, there's these reactionary types of al-Qaeda-type alliances with U.S. foreign policy. And, uh, I mean, you know, Tulsi Gabbers is not even given the time of day to, to explain, you know, her position and understanding of that dynamic. But there are people, there are other people. Richard Black from Virginia, uh, also a mainstream, you know, Republican, acknowledged that reality as well but the u.s press just refuses to give that the proper ink or else we would be not involved in so many so many overseas fiascos and and sanctions let me me ask you this first i just want to remind folks that we're visiting with with matt howe he's a former state department i believe right didn't you work for the state department for I was at the State Department for a little bit, and yeah, 10 years at the Marine Corps. and Right, and just uh, an outstanding historian. You've been on so many media sites, and I can't tell you how pleased we are, that, or I am, to have access to your analysis here, because I think it's very credible. And I guess one of the things, after uh, helping the Afghan government fight the Taliban for nearly two years, this peace process by the U.S., was opened in 2018, and the Taliban agreed in 2020 to cease these attacks on foreign forces in exchange for a U.S.-promised full withdrawal. And it's interesting, but correct me if I'm wrong, the Taliban has been true to their word. They have not attacked U.S. forces during that period of time. And as we speak today, there's still a couple of thousand forces there. But what I wanted to ask you to turn your attention to and help us understand a little bit more was that the Taliban, is it true? My understanding is that the Taliban has, over the last few years, increased its control over more and more territory, that they are in a military strength position. And and is one of the reasons why the United States, I think, was willing to come to the table. But apparently there's this the Ghani uh, government is unwilling to consider any type of interim government, yet they are very weak militarily, especially in light of the U.S. potential pullout. But can you, first of all, kind of highlight the conditions of this agreement, and then we can go from there as far as to what may happen if the Taliban does not accept the United States' request to extend our presentation there for another three to six months, which no doubt would have a large chance of turning into three to six years. <laughs> but anyhow, can you comment on that for us? Yeah, absolutely, yeah. So, so as, you, as you said, after first launching a massive bombing campaign and sending more troops to Afghanistan, Donald Trump in 2018, in September 2018, sends Ami Khalzad to talk to the Taliban. They're very receptive. Within a year, a deal is in hand. Donald Trump then has a, a famous temper tantrum right, or, right around the time the deal is supposed to be signed. That delays the deal for six months. But since the deal was signed in February of 2020, Taliban have not killed any U.S. or NATO forces. They have not launched attacks on any of them. Mm-hmm. One of the problems, Pedro, with this deal, though, and one of the things why it's flawed, is that there are these secret annexes, these confidential annexes, that nobody has access to besides the U.S. government and the Taliban. The Afghan government doesn't even have access to it. Right. And, and hold on just a second. This is actually a negotiation between the United States and the Taliban without the Afghan government at that table. Is that correct? 
That's correct, because the Taliban for years refused to speak to the Afghan government because they view, and, and I'm not a fan of the Taliban, not a supporter of the Taliban at all, but, right. you know, quite rightly, they view the Afghan government as a puppet of the United States. Mm-hmm. And they don't want to talk with the puppet. They want to talk with the puppet master. Mm-hmm. But the, the part of it, the, the deal was there were, there were also to be some prisoner exchanges. There were also, that, and then the Afghan government, the Taliban, were supposed to deliver a peace process, a peace deal to include a ceasefire. And so you, you see that is all supposed to happen over 14 months. And the problem is the prisoner exchange doesn't really happen. The Taliban step up their attacks on the Afghan government, which is, you know, again, we, don't, we, we do not know what this agreement says. We only know that the Taliban agreed not to attack U.S. or NATO forces, and that there should be this prisoner exchange, and that this peace process, these talks were supposed to happen between the Afghan government and the Taliban to bring about a ceasefire. And, you know, so the problem is, is that, when the United States government says the Taliban is not honoring its commitments, when the Taliban says the United States is not honoring its commitments, we really have no idea because we do not know what the commitments were. You have this, you have this problem where how do you know who is not... So this allows the United States, right, the United States, the Pentagon, members of Congress, whoever, to say that the Taliban is not holding up its end of the deal. Right. So Biden should not honor the agreement and pull all the troops out by May 1st. But but without even having access to what the commitments are made by each side, how does anyone know? And we know if there's anything we do know is we do know that the United States government has lied over and over and over again about this war systemically. You know, and as a matter of routine, right, as a, as a matter of program, basically, a, a system of lying about the that was revealed fully and completely by the Washington Post in December of 2019 and in, in the Afghan papers they published, right? So, you know, you do have this, these things of we're not even sure, those of us on the outside, what the agreement entails. Well, could, um, the, could the Taliban release that agreement if the United States was not? That, that would be one question. The other question I wanted to ask you, but they'll both need to wait until after our break. We do need to take a break and want to remind you, you are listening to the premier community radio station of the nation, 91.7 KOOP. This is bringing light into darkness with my guest, Matthew Howe, and we'll be back right after this. 